welcome to Risk Roundup. Over the years, many have wondered, what is the science of consciousness? Why does consciousness exist? Or how does consciousness exist? Or how to measure consciousness? And what are the different states of consciousness? The answers to any of these questions depend on our understanding of the philosophy and the science of consciousness in not only humans, but also in machines and perhaps in matter and you know mother nature. So how we understand its relationship plays a very important role. But as we see, even the term consciousness is itself caught in the endless explosion of meaning and there is no agreed central definition of consciousness or even tools to measure consciousness. To discuss science of consciousness in man and machines further, I'm honored to welcome Professor David Gemmes to Risk Roundup. Professor Gemmes is the lecturer in computer science at Middlesex University and is author of the book, Human and Machine Consciousness. I am reading this book currently, it's very interesting. His other publications include What We Can Never Know and What Philosophy, co-edited with uh, Harry Carell. He has also published many other papers and book chapters on philosophy, artificial intelligence, and neuroscience. Welcome, Professor Gemmes. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Wonderful, Professor Gemmes. So neuroscience hypothesis that consciousness is generated by interoperation of various parts of the brain called the neural correlates of consciousness. However, it seems there are challenges to that perspective. Now, proponents of machine consciousness believe that it is possible to construct systems, for example, computer systems, that can emulate these neural correlates of consciousness interoperation and interrelations. Where is this general consensus, consensus on consciousness you know, going? Uh, I don't know where it's going. I'm not sure anyone knows where it's going. I mean, f firstly, um, a lot of people so some people a lot of people obviously believe that consciousness is kind of caused by the brain and but the, which brings up a whole load of philosophical problems and so one of the reasons quick who came up with this neural correlates idea came up with correlates rather than causation is to say well let's not try and uh, talk about causation because there's the hard problem of consciousness all the kind of stuff let's just talk about correlation and see what what is linked to what in, in a very neutral way. So we're not trying to say that the consciousness is caused by, you know, neurons buzzing around, whatever, because we've no idea how that could work. But we can at least study, you know, the relationship between, you know, our conscious experiences and what's going on in the brain, and then maybe relate the two systematically. That's that's kind of the objective of all that. So so that's that's uh, scientifically tractable, which is why Crick liked it um, and why I like it too. Um, but, you know, in, in order to do that kind of work, you've still got to, uh, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, right? <laughs> you're yeah. just framing the problem. You're not solving the problem. Yeah. Very true. Very true. We have framed the problem, but there is still a lot to be done. You're right about it. Now, but human mind seems to be a set of cognitive faculties. I mean, that it includes consciousness. It includes perception, thinking, judgment, memory, so many of them. So it seems like you say, they're all in, you know, we need to understand the interrelations and interconnectedness. So, we still don't have a clear understanding of all the cognitive faculties that will give us a clear understanding of neither the human intelligence or human consciousness. So when we say a person is conscious or when we say a person is intelligent, is there a credible approach to measure consciousness or even intelligence? Okay, well, I mean, I've just started working on intelligence, but I'm happy to talk about that later. I mean, just the two are quite separate in a way, right? Yes. Um, so, uh, so okay. So, in terms of measurement, um, 
so in terms of so, so the question was sorry uh is there a credible way of measuring consciousness right yeah. so okay so so obviously there's very credible ways of measuring consciousness in terms of uh the external behavior of human beings right that you know I'm, I'm looking at you now and you know you're you're alert right talking to me you know there's a bunch of sort of uh, things like the glasgow coma scale or other sort of measures people put forward about how external behavior in humans can be used to infer their consciousness right and that's all totally standard we use that all the time in our day-to-day -day life if you're lying on the street you know asleep or something then i'd infer that you probably weren't conscious right unless you had rapid eye movement or something like that so in terms of external behavior we would you know of humans we've kind of covered that um the but measurement of consciousness in terms of external behavior becomes much more problematic when we switch to, I don't know, let's say birds or fish or octopi or something like that, right? Because we can't, because the same functions, shall we say, that are associated with consciousness in humans might be implemented in a totally different way in octopi, for example, his brain architecture is very different, right? We kind of have a hunch they might be conscious, but we can't just naively use that external behavior to measure consciousness in those animals. And that's why there's lots of papers and debates and discussions about whether octopi are conscious. And, uh, you know, I commented on some paper on whether fish are conscious and, you know, th this stuff goes on and on, yeah? And then when you go to um, machines, um, let's say robots or something like that, um, you have uh, people, again, sort of will try to naively take you know, external behavior that looks like external behavior and attribute consciousness to it. But in case of machines, you can't do that at all because um, with a robot, you could implement, you know, any old set of behavior in many, many different ways, right? It's a lookup table, a database, recorded behaviors, whatever, right? So there's no reason in robots, for example, to, um, you know, try and make some kind of inference from external behavior to, to the actual internal consciousness. That's, that's a mistake people often make, I think. So then we get to, you know, the sort of the other approach people have been taking to measuring consciousness, which is kind of touching on this kind of neural correlate stuff, right? That we um, we try and look at um, what's going on inside the system. And if it looks like what's going on inside the brain when we're conscious, then we can, you know, use that to make predictions about consciousness in other systems. So at least in my own work, um, the general path is to start with systems that we believe are conscious, like human beings and monkeys and you know most mammals probably, um, we're really confident about that, right? So when uh, uh, let's say a monkey behaves in a way that you know we behave that in the same way that we behave when we're conscious, we attribute consciousness to that monkey, right? Yeah. And then we can look inside the brain of that monkey or person and measure and try and find what's correlated with consciousness. So there's a whole bunch of research on the neural correlates of consciousness, as you said. Um, and we might be able to find, you know, there's theories about global workspace theory, theories about hot zones, theory about recurrent connections, a whole bunch of neuroscientific theories about that. And so if we could figure out, you know, what, what was actually going on in the brain when we're conscious um, and isn't going on when we're unconscious, then we might be able to look inside an octopus's brain, for example, or look inside, you know, potentially even a robot's brain um, and see what's got the same stuff going on. That's the general idea. And then there's a whole, you know, uh, I don't want to layer too many layers of complexity here, but there's, there's a lot of, the problem is that uh, if we're starting with humans, that's kind of like biological wetware, right? It's a bunch of squidgy neurons and uh, a load of chemicals flowing around in the blood and all this kind of stuff. So if, if we get too narrow um, a sort of interpretation of what's linked to consciousness, we're never going to be able to generalize it to kind of birds or to robots or anything like that, right? It's going to be just very specific human neural correlate stuff. So we need to somehow figure out a way of understanding the relationship between consciousness and the brain in a way that we can then take what we know about that and then generalize it to, you know, octopi and 
birds and infants and robots and all that kind of stuff. And that's actually turns out to be kind of quite a hard problem and no one's really solved that. The sort of the, the approach that a lot of people like, um, which has a whole bunch of problems of its own, I'm sorry, I'm only giving, going to give you problems in this talk, yeah? The approach that a lot of people like, um, because it's generalizable, is Tononi's, uh, Julio Tononi up in Wisconsin. He's come up with this thing called an information integration theory of consciousness, where it's a kind of an algorithm and it measures the sort of, you sort of apply the algorithm to the sort of uh, state transitions of a particular system, and it's all based on information states. And then using this algorithm, you can then generate a prediction um, about the, uh, you know, the consciousness in the system and what it's conscious of and all this kind of stuff. It has many serious limitations, such as the fact it's based on information, such as the fact that it's got these factorial dependencies. But a lot of people are attracted to that because if you could fit, if you could prove that it worked in a human brain, you could then apply it to any system you liked, and actually, you know, it would be generalizable. Probably, information integration theory isn't correct as an algorithm, but most likely, it's uh, but it's the right kind of approach. The sort it's, it's the right sort of thing I think we should be looking for, um, which would enable us then to prove that a particular algorithm works on a human, on maybe electromagnetic waves or something like that, and then we could then build a system that you know we could then and analyze it using that algorithm and then actually have some kind of generalizable theory of consciousness and be able to measure it in a sort of indirect way in other systems. That's the idea. Yeah, that's very interesting, information integration theory. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, even, even if it's an algorithm, just like, you know, genes, human body has all uh, different genes. And when the genes express, it depends on, you know, what is in the biochemistry, you know, the whole ecosystem, internal as well as external. So there must be many variables which influences whether the gene, you know, expresses the same way. There are probably, you know, many variables that will influence how the consciousness will be expressed. Because if you see any single human being, you know, at any time, the conscious behavior that would happen, you know, in any particular moment, you know, is different under different circumstances. Whether, you know, somebody, you know, acts, you know, consciously or, you know, in a different way, it depends on many different perhaps you know variables that's what i feel so even if there is if we can figure out what algorithm if it's you know going to perform uh, according to that it's still probably you know i feel that uh, there are many different variables that will influence or that will play a role because in recent years it's reported that the structure of the adult human brain changes when a new cognitive or motor skill you know including vocabulary is learned so whenever humans learn something new the brain changes you know the there are changes happening in the brain so this changes the level of uh, you know intelligence and nature of intelligence so if you compare it similarly or if you look at it from that perspective are is there any understanding about what defines the you know level of consciousness or what defines the expression of the consciousness in humans or machines what define well the level um okay so i mean i think people are fairly in humans at least i mean i'm you know i'm, I'm no neurologist right but as far as i understand there's a there's a sort of activation system right which would determine whether you're kind of capable of consciousness or not at a particular point in time i think it's, is it reticular activation system some of like that don't quote me on that but you kind of are quoting me on that but anyway it's, so you so in order for the you know so most people and probably the latest work supports this thing that you know something like 
that the actual contents of consciousness is going to be in a neocortex somewhere, right? The sort of, you know, sort of scrunched up stuff on the top of the brain. But in order for those neurons to reach the stage at which they're actively firing, then you need some kind of background activity being sort of pumped into them from deeper within the brain. And that's why you need, and so you have people, so if you destroy the activating system of the brain, then you, you, then you never get any consciousness at all kind of thing, yeah? So it's like an on-off switch, and that on-off switch, if that switch, if that's damaged, you end up in a deep coma, um, and if it's, you know, uh, and probably it goes on and off when you're into deep sleep and that kind of stuff. So so in terms of level, um, then that, that probably gives you, is controlling the level to some extent. And then in terms of, and something I should have mentioned actually, um, is that there is work in terms of, I mentioned the external behavior and I mentioned the kind of algorithmic work, but so there's a kind of some very promising stuff in the middle um, where people are using um, a, a combination of uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation where they kind of hit the brain with a pulse of electromagnetic energy. And then they use EEG, which is kind of recording the resulting electrical activity of the brain. And they found that when they hit the brain with a pulse and then record the activity, um, the complexity of the resulting activity of the brain that results in that pulse um, correlates with the level of consciousness. So they come up with a sort of way of measuring consciousness in this way, and they can, and then they applied it to coma patients on this case. This is kind of work of Casali, I think, in Milan, something like that. It's like a few years ago. I think I've applied it in various areas since then. So that's a sort of another way, you know, of measuring consciousness, you know, through kind of by directly stimulating the brain and Tononi sort of claims it's consistent with his work, which it is, but it's in no way a proof of, you know, information integration theory. So that's the, so in terms of the, the level stuff, probably we're talking things like the reticular activating system or whatever it is, yeah? Um, which is kind of deeper brain structures providing the sort of electrical current effectively that provides, means that the cortex will actually be at this sort of activation threshold kind of thing. And then in terms of conscious contents, um, well, most likely, my best guess, um, which I wrote in a paper a few years ago, is that, it, and it actually gets very consistent with this hot zone stuff that Cox come up with recently, is that um, particular kinds of patterns in the neurons are correlated with uh, different kinds of experiences. That's that's my best guess about that, right? So, obviously, there's a different qualitative character to uh, neurons being activated in my audio cortex rather than my visual cortex, right? And the character of those cortexes is largely um, a result of, um, well, at least in ferrets, because they've done these experiments in ferrets, um, is due to the sort of stim the types of stimulation that you get on those different cortexes. So if you stimulate a piece of cortex that, you know, doesn't have any kind of, you know, patterns in it, whatever, hasn't learned anything yet, with uh, audio information processed through the air with all its spike conversion stuff, um, then you're going to get one kind of pattern impinging on that cortex, and that cortex will learn that kind of pattern and then develop patterns of its own that respond to those kinds of incoming auditory patterns. And the same is true on the visual cortex. And so one of the experiments that sort of illustrates that is with, with ferrets, young ferrets, I think uh, ferrets in the womb even, can't remember the details, but they swapped around the connections from the auditory and the visual, and they showed that the the parts of the brain, the ferret's brain that received the, vis the visual signals, even though they're originally auditory, they developed the same kind of response characteristics as the audit as the visual ones would have been if, you know, if the visual data had been in a normal place. So this kind of suggests, since consciousness clearly correlated with these parts of the brain to some extent, that the, the, the character of the patterns, which is largely learnt by sort of stimulation, um, is probably linked to the different qualitative character of, of the consciousness um, that's associated with those states. So if you wanted to reproduce them, I suppose, you, you know, robot or something like that, you'd have to reproduce those kinds of patterns, but we've actually got no idea what those patterns are really. I mean, you know, 
and yeah. just just more generally about the that kind of stuff so why people like Tononi's theory is because it has a compact simple answer to um, the relationship between all of the enormous complexity of the brain and all of the enormous complexity of consciousness because you just apply that algorithm even though you can't apply it for various uh, technical reasons um, and then it will generate a representation of the state of consciousness and that representation of the state of consciousness will be different for each different state of consciousness that's why people like it but it's as i said it's massively flawed so yeah but, it, but as an ideal it's not a bad one yeah Yes, no, it's very interesting. And I think uh, you are probably you know, right on that because it's the brain waves, right? So when when you have the bombardment of electromagnetic, you know, waves, then it does influence the, you know, level of consciousness. And that makes me think that with this, you know, 5G and all these advances that are happening in the digital global age and, you know, with the, so much, you know, electromagnetic uh, radiation and electromagnetic waves are all around the humans. What is going to be the impact on all the humans? I'm just, you know, uh, thinking about it because it, after all, it's the brain waves and, you know, when the electromagnetic uh, uh, waves, you know, hit it, it does impact. So, if not now, in uh, five years, 10 years, what's going to be the impact on human consciousness? That is something, you know, uh, I hope that someone studies that because there will be some impact in the coming years. Now, in a human mind, it seems consciousness and intelligence is equal to creativity, perhaps. I mean, these are all theories. So I cannot say for sure, but it, I read that it's equal to creativity. So in machines at this point, it seems we may be able to create some level of intelligence and awareness. There is awareness in machine because if you ask them what time is it, they're able to tell us, you know, we ask whether machines are able to tell us. So it's this sort of awareness. So is that considered consciousness? Can we consider that as a consciousness? And how can we develop mathematical theories that can make believable or, you know, reliable predictions about consciousness? I was reading in your book, you have done some work on that. Yeah, um, so it's sort of several topics, right? So, I mean, roughly speaking, um, I guess we do a lot of our, so, so you've got these sort of three things, right? You've got creativity, um, consciousness, and intelligence, right? So all of which, you know, well, consciousness, I think, can be fairly clearly defined, right? I mean, at least in my own work, consciousness is, you know, a kind of what I define as a sort of a bubble of experience, right? That we, when we're conscious, we're immersed in this bubble of space, you know, which changes and shapes and response to our environment. And within, I look out from my body into this bubble, this world, and see colors and shapes and tastes. And, all that. and that's what I mean by consciousness, right? And, the, and you can now tell a whole story about the evolution of the sort of emergence of this concept of consciousness in response to certain developments in science in the 17th century and all that kind of stuff. So, so I think consciousness we can define very clearly as this kind of experiential world that we're kind of immersed in, um, which has, you know, and obviously, when we're fully conscious, that world is kind of richly colored and, you know, high resolution, all that kind of stuff. And But sometimes if we're in a dream, it's much more fleeting and unstable and has lots of different kind of levels of consciousness and different characteristics of consciousness. But and so within our conscious experience, um, we can, you know, we can do we can do different stuff. Right. We can, you know, do paintings. We can do all that kind of stuff. And um, and so then you're going to get into kind of creativity. And so I wouldn't necessarily say there was some people would say potentially um but the evidence for this i think is is waning um that you know there might be some kind of link between being creative creativity or the kinds of structures that are needed for creativity and the kind of structures that might be needed for consciousness right so some would say 
there's a very popular theory about consciousness called global workspace theory, um, which is like, uh, it's kind of, it's based on this old sort of blackboard architecture, which is quite a good way to think about it, that you have a sort of blackboard, if you like, and, and lots of competing sort of small, and the blackboard is the kind of conscious stuff. And then you have a bunch of kind of competing small unconscious processes that do different kinds of things, yeah? And very loosely, um, the, the different unconscious processes compete and the one that's got the most sort of important stuff to say puts its stuff on the blackboard and then that gets broadcast back to all of the other processes and then they process then they get that new information and they do more stuff and then another they compete again and you have this cycle of competition and broadcast and cycle competition and broadcast so so you might think um within the context of that kind of theory that uh, maybe creativity or intelligence or something like that some kind of flexible intelligence is linked to consciousness so as I said, it's it's a it's a popular architecture, but I'm a little doubtful about it because these more recent results in the neural correlates of consciousness, which suggest that consciousness is actually more localized. It's not necessarily this whole global brain broadcasting stuff. But the, you know, the jury's a little bit out on that. So if you believe buy into these kind of theories of consciousness, and there's Edelman's reentrance stuff, and there's other sort of you know recurrent connection theories, um, then you might make some kind of connection between tasks that we can only do consciously which which is kind of fair right there's a bunch of things we can only do consciously um but whether those things are intelligence or whether those things are um creativity is a little bit questionable right because you often you know have an idea that just pops into your head right so there's obviously a, an unconscious component to creativity to a large extent i think so so there's obviously some kinds of reasoning which initially we can only do consciously. And so those are probably linked to the mechanisms that are linked to consciousness to some extent. Um, and there's a bunch of other stuff that we can do unconsciously, you know, just as well. And then intelligence, um, I just started work on this. Um, so I, I've got a strong hunch um, that, it, so intelligence is sort of multifaceted, again, when these multifaceted concepts, people mean different things by it, but there's a sort of fairly strong strand of intelligence is to do with prediction, I think. So the ability to generate, given a set of inputs and your bodily actions, how far can you generate predictions, accurate predictions about your environment, you know, based on that. And that's kind of very much linked to planning, right? That we can take the current state of the world and then we can plan to reach another state of the world by generating predictions about what would happen if we did different things under different circumstances. Um, and there's lots of elements of prediction in our Q tests, for example. So, and quite a few people within AI, for example, you know, as well think that, you know, prediction is kind of a good way of capturing one, one very important aspect of intelligence. And I kind of buy that too. Um, so, so again, so that kind of, so the kind of conscious planning, again, is, is utilizing a lot of prediction, right? If I'm trying to think about how to get to the shops, for example, I might, you know, imagine going to the corner of my street and then I'll imagine turning left and I'll imagine turning right. I'm doing a whole bunch of different predictive steps in order to reach my goal. And we'd use that kind of reasoning in, you know, lots of different areas. If I'm imagining a new sculpture I'm trying to build, again, that's linking up to the creativity. I might imagine different sides of it and how I might cut it and all that kind of stuff. Or if I'm a sportsman, I might imagine, you know, running the race in different ways and all that kind of stuff. So there are obviously connections um, between consciousness, intelligence and creativity, but also in some circumstances, I think there's a dissociation between them, right? So there may be some underlying mechanisms that are linked to consciousness and that enable creativity and um, intelligence. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we could quite easily build, you know, the standard machine learning stuff is very predictive, it's very intelligent, but I wouldn't be particularly inclined to attribute much much consciousness to it, right? Yeah, so you think that uh, computational architecture, that means, you know, the algorithms and all, that uh, that plays a you know key role because you said it's localized right consciousness 
uh, your theory is more towards it being a localized. So it, does the algorithm, you know, play a key role in the, the consciousness? And then if it is uh, the case in machines, then uh, DNA is also sort of like an algorithm. So is that uh, what is playing a role in consciousness? And then it's genetic that, you know, there is no environmental uh, role that uh, impacts the genetic, you know, nature of the algorithm. Is that where the theory is going, that it is... Uh, consciousness is uh, genetic and hereditary. Well, okay, so 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 the algorithm. Um, so there's there's two sort of aspects to this. Yeah. So uh, I'll try and get to the question about genetic heredity in the end. Yeah. But um, so the algorithms that have been put forward, like uh, Tononi's information integration thing or my own liveliness one, they're trying to measure what's going on inside the brain um, when it's conscious as opposed to when it's unconscious in order to be able to generate a prediction about about that. Yeah. So it's it's taking. It, it's not saying what's it's not kind of it's not saying what algorithm the brain is implementing it's trying to just I interpret the states and see if it can generate a prediction about that yeah so so for example if, you know back in the day people used to believe that synchronized neurons right neurons firing in the same in synchrony were linked to consciousness so you could write an algorithm that would measure whether neurons are synchronized or not for example and then that would enable you to predict consciousness if that was indeed the relationship but, but but you know that's pretty doubtful no one really believes that anymore i don't think but but that's kind of try but you but just because they're synchronized doesn't tell you what they're actually doing if you see what i mean yeah and then the other kind of algorithm you might want to talk about is what's that what the brain is actually doing um when it's conscious right and so there's a whole bunch of in my opinion bad um functional and computational theories that you know consciousness is linked to attention or consciousness is linked to uh higher order thought for example you know theories about the sort of the cognitive functions that are going on inside the brain and then a lot of people believe that those cognitive functions could then be implemented in computer and then that computer would also you know be conscious to some extent yeah so that's a, that's sort of a different kind of algorithm from the algorithms that are being used to measure consciousness uh, uh, yeah so and, and there's a, the reason why I don't believe in any of these computational functional theories is because um, it's too easy to write 20 different kinds of program that produce the same kind of function. Yeah, there's a there's a sort of massive multiple realizability problem. So you kind of need to make your conscious machine, you kind of need to implement your functions in the same way that the brain is implementing those functions if they're, you know, so, so there's a whole bunch of work on what's called neuromorphic chips, where they're using... So your standard chip just has a bunch of uh, like instructions, right? Like copy this number to there and multiply this number by you know another number, all that kind of stuff. So they've got nothing really to do with how neurons work. And so if you write a simulation of the brain using standard chips, you're producing a system that physically is radically different from a brain. Whereas with a neuromorphic chip, um, it's designed just to simulate neurons or emulate neurons. So you have like the flow of electrons within the chip kind of mimic the flow of ions within the actual physical neuron. And so the, the electromagnetic waves at the very least produced by this neuromorphic chip are made much similar to the electromagnetic waves in the brain. So it's a much more plausible candidate for the kind of system that could be linked to consciousness. And in terms of the genetics, um, I guess, uh, well, well, firstly, um, obviously the genetics don't determine are our best going to set up a system um, that might be capable of consciousness. Then obviously the genes themselves are probably too slow acting and to actually be, you know, turned on and off, it's it's more likely a high level activity of the whole system um, that's produced by the genetics, I guess, right? Um, because and obviously you can have the same genes and be conscious and unconscious at the same, you know, at different points in time. So, 
Um, so probably there is a genetic component to set it. Well, obviously the genes set up the initial state of the brain. Um, and I don't know what would happen. I don't, yeah, because all the experiments on, the natural experiments on brains that are not cultured have still been exposed to environments, right? So I don't know if we've got any data on brains that had the genes, if you like, but zero exposed, but that matured in the complete absence of an environment. I mean, not only would that be massively unethical, <laughs> but I don't think they've done it in mice or something. Um, but, uh, you know, you, but then even then, um, for example, those experiments I was talking about earlier where they were exposing the, the ferrets cortex to the stimulation patterns, a lot of the training of that was done in the womb because in the womb, you still have these noise patterns happening in the, in the, like in the ear circuits or whatever, in the, in the, in the retina and that kind of stuff. So you're still getting vision-like stimulation of the brain and auditory-like stimulation of the brain, as well as a limited amount of light filtering through the stomach of the woman and a limited amount of sounds filtering through. So even if you tried to completely isolate a brain from its environment, you, you'd, you'd struggle basically. And, and, to, and so it'd be difficult to know whether the correlates of conscious stuff will get set up entirely by genetics or whether you'd need some kind of, because you can't get rid of the environment at all easily, right? Right. Except, except maybe the only example would be um, the experiments that have been done growing brains and um, growing uh, cortex tissue in uh, petri dishes, right? So there have been some stuff done on that. So you could see whether, you know, if you've got a whole blob of bunch of neurons without any stimulation, they probably wouldn't self-organize into the kinds of patterns that we think might possibly be linked to consciousness. That's only a guess. Yeah, right, right. No, I, I, I hear you on that. I, I think uh, while it is, it could be genetic, uh, environment definitely could be playing a role. The reason is I was reading a report, you know, recently on some uh, supplements that people take. And when they take those supplements, uh, they get a lot of dreams they get more dreams than you know they were getting before and they would remember the dreams and you know that all these different states of consciousness like sleep and alertness or dreaming and meditating they are all you know different uh, sorts of consciousness and it happens under different environmental conditions so uh, whether the conscious mind is simply a function of brain activity or is it a non-physical material substance or it gets influenced by you know uh, the biochemical environment or even the electromagnetic environment the, all those things you know uh, perhaps needs to be studied more to be able to uh, come to uh, some sort of you know conclusion but it seems that uh, science recognizes that there are many different states of consciousness so what are the different states of consciousness that are more important? Are each of the different states of consciousness, you know, playing the same role in human behavior? Or, you know, you think that certain states of consciousness are more important when it comes to human behavior or probably, you know, machine behavior? Because the fear that is there that, you know, someday machines, you know, will take over and, you know, will not... Uh, you know, think of human, you know, will not be loyal to humanity and that, you know, it will destroy humanity. So if we are developing machine consciousness, then what is the level of that consciousness? What is that nature of consciousness that we need to be mindful about to for the future of humanity, to protect humanity, you know, in the coming years? Okay, so, so just a couple of comments um, on the initial stuff. <clears throat> so, you know, clearly, um, the, the chemical and electrical environment has a massive effect on, on our consciousness, right? So, 
you know, hallucinogens to, you know, pick an extreme example, right, completely mess with consciousness and provide wild hallucinations and that kind of stuff. And if you take, you know, anesthetics at the other extreme, right, it completely knocks out and just, you know, eliminates consciousness. So, so there's clearly a very tight, you know, the brain's very sensitive to certain kinds of chemicals that affect its, the transmitter properties, all this kind of stuff. Um, and regardless of your position on dualism and second, you know, all that, there's a given that there's a correlation between states of the brain and states of consciousness. If you mess with the brain with various kinds of chemicals, your, your consciousness changes radically as well. And then to kind of jump to the to the end of you know what you were saying in a way. Um, so, I mean, I don't personally, you know, I mean, what states of consciousness are important from a, a human point of view obviously depends on you know what humans think are important, right? I mean, if I was religious, I might think that. You know, religious experiences were, you know, more important because they told me about God and my relationship to God and all that kind of stuff. Or if I wasn't uh, monotheist, I might believe that, you know, other kinds of, you know, uh, sort of experiences of union or whatever would be, you know, very important in terms of, you know, the trajectory of my life. Or, you know, if I wasn't religious, well, I'm not religious anyway, particularly. But uh, then, uh, you know, so so there's a uh, everyone has their own sets of important experiences that are, you know, important to them, right? I, I wouldn't personally place a judgment on, you know, whether one or another is better or not. Um, but relating back to the question of, uh, you know, machines destroying humanity stuff. Um, so supposing we were, because, well, so the first point about this is, yeah, machines probably aren't going to destroy humanity if they're only based on deep learning, right? So that there's, you know, deep learning is a very limited technology that's had a lot of local success, but it's not the kind of thing that could produce the kind of flexible cognition that without, you know, the kinds of, you know, one-shot learning and prediction and reinforcement learning, all that kind of stuff that humans can do, deep learning can't do, right? It's, so it's, it's, there's a bit of a, over hype of this kind of stuff, yeah? So, but let's suppose um, we did build machines that were more like human thinking but just much more powerful right so they had the kind of flexibility and the kind of kind of the consciousness in the sense that they had a sort of single stream of awareness containing stuff but let's suppose that they had massively more data so they were much more powerful at thinking than we are with our very limited brains and our very biologically constrained you know hardware and all that kind of stuff yeah um and then you get the question of you know well what do the machines do right um and this kind of links up with the kind of intelligence or decision-making stuff, which is what I'm moving into now much more. So I think you have to make a distinction um, between intelligence, which is the ability to sort of predict or, you know, have a certain knowledge of the future, right? Which machines are getting better at, right? Deep learning is good at that stuff when it's got the data. And then a sort of decision um, about, you know, what's a good state and what's a bad state or what goal you actually want to achieve at some point in the future, right? And that's, and that's the bit where you get more into the sort of threat of humanity stuff, right? So machines that simply predict, you know, everything, if you like, in some godlike way, uh, aren't any kind of threat, right? It's machines that do stuff or have decisions or agendas or, or this kind of thing that, that are, are going to pose some kind of threat. Um, and in humans, at least, I mean, I think that the best way of thinking about that um, how we do that stuff is um, through Damasio's, Damasio has this idea of somatic markers. So that when we sort of interact with the world, um, we have, we experience things and then um, some things have effects on our bodies in different ways, right? We might feel afraid or we might feel happy or this kind of stuff. So we sort of sensory stimulation of various kinds triggers these feelings in us and those feelings are, in a sense, our sort of evaluation of whether things are good or bad, right? They're sort of a felt 
judgment about the different um, states of the world that we experience. And those felt judgments might be hardwired in a very limited way in humans, right? You might be scared of spiders or snakes or something like that because they're sort of small and move quickly. But a lot of the sort of the judgments we have are kind of, um, you know, built up as we go, right? You know, why is, you know, one, you know, manufacturer better or worse than another? Well, probably because the advertising has kind of conditioned us, you know, with warm, cozy feelings because of the way in which it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's produced the adverts and the associations in the adverts. So I think that um, in terms of judgment and ethics, uh, in humans at least, uh, pretty much all of it, you know, you can boil down to these kind of emotional reactions or somatic markers um, that we use to evaluate different states of the world and make our plans, right? So we imagine going to the shops and buying different kinds of food, and some of them will produce a sort of warm, cozy feeling of satisfaction, and others will feel, you know, a sense of revulsion, right? We... And so getting back to the machines, so probably if we want machines to fo for function like humans, we're going to have to have machines with some kind of judgments or evaluations of those of the world, right? And we might try to make those machines kind of learn their somatic markers for the environment, which almost certainly we're going to have to do because we're never going to be able to program some kind of super smart intelligence from scratch. We tried that and no one's achieved it. These kind of the super intelligence, whatever it is, will have to sort of learn about the world by hoovering up lots of data and by experiencing things and trying things out. And otherwise, it's never going to get, you know, even half as smart as people. And so somehow, if you want to protect humanity, you somehow have to be able to have some control over its um, its ethics, if you like, which will be grounded in its emotions to some extent. Yeah. So it'll have positive and negative sort of associations with different states of the world. And you somehow, and this is a very hard problem, going to have to somehow control that it has, you know, positive associations with keeping people alive and not wiping out humanity and keeping itself alive, if you see what I mean. And that's that's the difficult control problem. Yeah, but it's a complex challenge because at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at humans, we are still, uh, you know, depending on our identity as a, you know, community, as in our tribe, or, you know, our nationality. So if, if you look at the machines, even if we integrate the ethics in the code, they would still, you know, as they develop more intelligence, they are going to know that they are not humans. They are machines. They are entirely different intelligence species. So their loyalty is going to be towards machines. They are not going. Their loyalty is not going to be towards humans because they will consider humans as other species. So these complex challenges will need to be figured out because even if we integrate ethics in the code, how are we going to? prevent, you know, machines to think that there are other, you know, intelligent species. Maybe we need to give them an identity. Maybe we need to somehow make them think that they are part of human species. Those things will be very essential, you know, for us to prevent them going off track and, you know, thinking about just their survival as a species rather than human survival. So again, you know, these are very, very complex challenges and we will have to come up with, you know, uh, some... Uh, unique solutions to prevent the nature of the disasters that you know a lot of uh, thought leaders are thinking that is coming our way but uh, to understand all that to learn all that to research all that requires tools and technology do you think we have enough tools and technology right now to study all these complex challenges uh, irrespective of whether it's intelligence decision making or consciousness do we have enough tools and technology or we need further advances in tools and technology to help researchers like you, you know, do a better job at understanding these complex, you know, uh, problems and coming up with effective solutions. Where is the advancement uh, 
when are the advances necessary? Okay, so so can I just comment? I'll comment again on the first bit, and then I'll, I'll come to the tools and technology stuff. So, um, so I guess there's a couple of comments on the first bit. So, firstly, um, a lot of this stuff is is way overhyped, right? So, you know, we we we, we all watch far too many science fiction films, right? <laughs> and you know that that is that technology is way in the future, right? We're you know um, we're currently at this sort of what AI revolution, AI resurgence, whatever two or three point whatever it is. Um, but you know that'll burn out. Yeah, the the deep learning stuff is great, but it's it's super limited. You know, people have a who actually don't do AI have a you know tend to have a very you know high opinion of it. Whereas if you do it, you kind of you see massive limitations in it, and and you know just how bad stuff is still. So so there's lots of nice solutions in small areas like object recognition, face recognition, language processing. You know, we can probably do some nice classification of, you know, tumor, tumor slides and stuff like that. But, you know, a, a cognitive systems are, are way short of, you know, the sort of the science fiction, you know. And so, you know, as an aside, um, you know, there's some nice work in machine consciousness, which is trying to produce um, machines that are sort of, you know, where, where they have a, like a simulation um, environment that is the machine's perception of reality, if you like. And then they're, they're, they're trying to make these machines sort of think in a way that's more human-like, if you like. So, so that's the kind of the step after, you know, all this AI boom with, with data science. You know, it's, it's, it's a kind of return to some of the roots of AI and trying to actually figure out systems that are think like more in a more human-like way. And there's, there's a bunch of research still going on with that. Um, so that's that's the first sort of, Point I wanted to make. So the second point I want to make is that um, people often, um, generally because the science fiction is biased in this way, um, tend to think that you know the AI takeover is going to be this horrific you know thing, right? Um, and they tend to forget that you know humans are pretty horrific already, right? So you know, <laughs> you know, we slaughter each other all the time, run the world badly, you know, got some other bad political systems at the moment. So it's not like it's all peachy now, right? Um, so. You know, the flip side of all this is, well, you know, that this sort of dream, probably of the 50s or whatever, of this sort of more rational or better planned society that actually, you know, takes it out of the ha hands of humans to some extent with their messy, dirty emotions, you know, and all that kind of stuff, right? Because our emotions are pretty messed, right? In many ways, we're not really in control of them and we get the whole political country systems run by people, you know, based on their egos and that kind of stuff. So, you know, in, in some ways, this whole AI thing could be, a, you know, has the potential to be not just some kind of apocalyptic robot stamping on the skulls of human stuff, but it could be, you know, Asimov actually, you know, iRobot has a has a vision of this kind of benign takeover by 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 artificial intelligences, you know, in a, in a gentle way that has lots of bugs. The robots kill a few people, not in Asimov, but they will, um, uh, and have already like self-driving cars. Um, but you know, they, they but so of course there are bugs, of course there are glitches, but it, it's a sort of you know, it's, it, there is a, a vision where there's a sort of you know, coexistence with AIs and where they get the strengths of the AIs kind of compensate for the human weaknesses and that kind of stuff. And related to that, um, you know, supposing we could um, produce um, conscious machines, like really conscious machines in the same way that we're conscious, yeah? Then we get into this, uh, there's a whole sort of set of tricky ethical issues, um, not only about how we should treat those conscious machines, but consciousness is within human values, um, for the most part, uh, something that we respect as a as a thing, you know, it's it's almost a source of value, the consciousness itself, right? So so people who are conscious, 
um, you know, we're not allowed to kill them, right? Whereas coma patients, you know, you can switch the machine off because they're not conscious, yeah? And typically in discussions about, you know, animals and whether we should, how we should treat animals, you know, if an animal is not conscious, then it's okay to treat it however we want to treat it. But if it is conscious, then we've got to, you know, respect its rights and all that kind of stuff. So, so if we have machines that are conscious, um, let's say, then obviously they're going to have to have similar kind of rights to ourselves, right? And then you ask the question, well, you know, maybe these, why would we prefer human consciousness to these machine consciousnesses, right? Maybe it'd be better to have, you know, lots more machine consciousnesses and less human consciousnesses, right? Because they're just the same kind of thing, yeah? And furthermore, I mean, humanity is going to be wiped, as you when you reach the end of my book, right? It's like humanity is going to be wiped out by uh, the sun at some point, whereas our machine consciousnesses is, our machine consciousnesses at least can leave the solar system, whereas we can't, right? So if you want to, if you're looking long-term, billions of years, you know, the machine consciousness stuff's the way to go. So to answer the third part of your question about technology, um, well, obviously lots of cash, you know, is, is kind of required, right? Um, but I think what most people, well, a lot of people worry about with all this AIs and um, this kind of stuff is um, the problem of unpredictability, because um, I really don't think um, as you know, th th there's some sort of fantasist in this in this area who think that we can somehow embody the ethics of the mach of, of machine um, in its operating system or in the code somehow by like writing a few lines of code or whatever. But a lot of the the problems with AI aren't necessarily problems in uh, the application of a set of rules baked into the operating system, whatever that means. They're more to do with uh, misperception or something like that, right? So that the robots. You know, might have the rule that it's, say we've got a, a killer robot on the, on the battlefield, right? And it has a rule that it must not kill, you know, innocent civilians, let's say, right? But if it's, you know, all the, but it suppose it's uh, hostiles detection algorithm, you know, picks up the yellow jackets, let's say, and all the civilians are wearing yellow jackets, then it'll just machine gun all the get all, all the civilians as well, right? So, so there's a whole bunch of problems about misperception or miscognition or misunderstanding. Um, that are far more that are going to undermine any attempt to kind of write these things into the operating system. And humans are the same, right? We know our ethical codes, but then we, you know, constantly cheat on them all the time, right? You know, there's a lot of data showing that people, you know, will profess, you know, some kind of rigid set of values, but then in fact, you know, they'll bend them and twist them as much as they like to actually do what they want to do in their real lives. Yeah. <laughs> so, so robots will, and artificial intelligence have the same problem. It's, it's it's a dream to imagine you could bake it into the code somehow. And, and it's also a dream that to imagine you could bake it into the code, because as I said, humans are too stupid to sit down and write, you know, 20 million lines of code or whatever it takes um, that will be some kind of super intelligent system. We're not capable of that. Yeah, we can write Linux operating system. We can do some pretty complex stuff, but we've tried and failed to write a super complex AI by itself. The only way plausibly um, that we're going to get a super complex AI or super intelligent AI is by some kind of learning you know, and there's tons and tons of work of people building robots and the robots interact with the world and learn about the world through interacting with it, all of which is extremely primitive. But that's really the only game in town in terms of building a system that could actually um, be more intelligent or as intelligent as a human, because we're just not clever enough. We don't have the time to write a system from scratch that can do that. We can write limited AIs, and even those limited AIs are mainly based on learning these days. That's so neuromorphic computing could change that, right? Well, yeah, they're, they're based on, well, they, they would incorporate learning. So it, let's say we had a neuromorphic computer, a fairly simple one with a million neurons in it, which some people are trying to build. That would still be a system that learned through interacting with its environment. But ju just to make this final quick point, um, so so what people are, so since it's going to be based on learning, um, the whole problem a lot of people who worry about AI ethics are struggling with is how do we know what it's learned, right? 
So if we've got a self-driving car that learns how to drive its way along the road, and then it crashes and kills someone, how can we understand what that self-driving car did so that we can fix it and prevent it from doing it again? And if the self-driving car is controlled by you know, some kind of super complex deep learning network that's just hoovered up a load of data, then it's going to be very difficult to look inside that network and see exactly why it reached the decision that it did. And that's why Deep DeepMind generated all those sort of bizarre, sort of hallucinatory pictures to try and understand what their visual learning networks had learned. But in terms of a deep network that had learned, you know, uh, sort of road speed and all kinds of complex stuff, you, that kind of visualization is not going to help you. So the plus side of work on some of the work on machine consciousness is that you can produce a system that's more controlled in the sense that you have some parts of the system, like the visual detectors and that kind of stuff can be just you know black box deep learning stuff. But then the kind of reasoning processes you know, can be more like conscious reasoning processes. And then potentially you can look inside the mind of the system and understand why it did what it did and get it to articulate why it did what it did. So by building more human-like systems like that, even though they're not going to be controllable, but we might at least be able to look inside them and see why they're acting in the way they're acting. And that might help us to, you know, adjust them or switch them off or whatever we needed to do. So yes. it's a lot. Yes, I think just the way, you know, we are trying to uh, embed the ethics in the code, we need to embed security in the code to prevent, you know, the future disasters that so many people are worried that once we get technological singularity, irrespective of it, whether it comes through the uh, I mean the deep learning or neuromorphic computing or whichever you know uh, method it you know goes through, or whether we get the technological singularity using gene you know gene editing, the intelligence you know is going to increase you know tremendously. The level of intelligence is going to increase tremendously in man and machines both in the coming years. So we do need to come up with, you know, proper frameworks, pro proper, you know, uh, security controls, irrespective of whether it's, you know, man or machine, so that we prevent the sort of, you know, disasters that could happen for the future of humanity. So we, these are all, you know, what we, this is what we are trying to do, develop thought leadership so that we can uh, visualize what could go wrong, where it could go wrong, and how to prevent those strategic security risks for the future of humanity. Having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about your efforts towards understanding consciousness in man and machines and about your books where they can uh, get the books so that they can uh, read that and uh, also as what would you like to tell those brilliant students brilliant young people out there who are trying to make a difference for and trying to solve problems for not only their communities but also for their nations and even for the future of humanity Okay, that's a lot of questions, right? <laughs> okay, so, well, just on my books, right? So, uh, obviously, if you're interested in the human and machine consciousness stuff, they can just read it for free online. Just look up Human and Machine Consciousness by David Gamers. Um, you know, that's easy. And you'll also, if you just look at my name, David Gamers, you can find like a bunch of publications on that. Um, so, that's that question. Um, in terms of, um, and more generally, uh, I'm more than happy to take, you know, masters, PhD students, whatever. So if people want to get in touch and do this kind of stuff. I'm more than happy to work with people or collaborate, that kind of thing. Um, what was the other parts of that question? I should have written it down. What would you like to tell those brilliant minds who wants to get involved? Um, of humanity. Okay. Uh, in terms of, well, it depends. Uh, yeah. Uh, depends what. What aspect of it, I suppose, right? So, I mean, there's a bunch of, 
you know, I think it's fairly easy these days. To, there's a lot of, you know, very nice tools around. Um, I mean, just on the pure AI side, right, that you can use um, to do lots of different fun stuff. I mean, what's really good about the world today, I mean, I haven't really I'm done any of this kind of work in developing countries, let's say, but, you know, I imagine um, that if you've got access to a computer, you can pretty much do all the stuff that anyone anywhere in the world can do, right? So, you know, I've been teaching my students about using the cloud and deep learning in the cloud and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, anyone can do that anyway, right? You can just get hold of, you know, an account and, and just use that kind of stuff. So the technology is there to, um, for anyone to take hold of that technology and learn, you know, because it's, again, there's like a million different resources. So we're, we're living in a kind of golden age of applying technology um, two different problems in the world. And I think that's great. Um, and I think, you know, just to reflect back a little bit, um, the whole singularity thing, I think is again, one of these sort of slightly overblown things. I mean, a few people are working on, uh, you know, machine uh, programs that become smarter, but, uh, as it happens, um, I think the, we're only going to get a decent technological one way to get the technological singularity is um, to have some kind of better way of measuring intelligence, right? Because if we can measure intelligence with an algorithm, like we're talking about with the measuring consciousness, um, then we can uh, train a system to perform better against the, the measure of intelligence, right? We can get a, use genetic algorithms where you have a, you can produce like 10 different systems and you measure the performance of each of them using your intelligence measure. And then you kind of crossbreed them and then you produce another set of systems and then you keep doing that. So if you've got a measure of intelligence, you can potentially produce the singularity because you can get increasingly intelligent machines through genetic algorithms or some kind of other mechanism like that. So, so on the bright side, um, and that's what I'm working on next, right? I kind of like the idea of um, having a measure of intelligence based on predictions. So that's currently one of my summer project. We'll see how it goes. Um, so that's, you know, just fun stuff really. But, uh, you know, um, but that's that's the thing to, so people should start worrying about the singularity when we actually have some plausible attempts at the singularity. The singularity is not going to just happen, you know, out of a box, out of nowhere, right? There'll be like 20 different bad programs that kind of get a bit more intelligent and then, then fall out. There'll be some talent programs that run out of resources and, and so on and so forth, right? So I, I think we can worry about the singularity nearer the time, so to speak. And just another comment I wanted to make, um, as it happens, um, the most dangerous machines in terms of in computers in terms of threatening humanity, um, it's, it hasn't been the intelligence of the machines, it's been the bugs in the machines, right? So there's been at least one, um, there was that famous, uh, the man who saved the world, right? There's a documentary film about um, a Soviet guy working, there was a, I think it was the early 80s or late 80s, can't remember. Um, there was a bug in the early warning system of the Soviet you know, nuclear defense, right? So it looked as if and there was a massive nuclear attack coming from America, yeah, because of a bug in the system. So, you know, if, if this man had sort of gone according to protocol, they would have launched a massive counter-strike, which would have triggered the real strike, and we'd have been, you know, annihilated, basically. But that's why he's called the man who saved the world, because he made the call that, you know, even though the experts say it's not a software error, I think it probably is a software error, so that's not, you know, trying to obliterate the Americans at the same time. So, and I think there was a similar problem in some of the American, you know, launching systems. So those kinds of bugs, you know, a massive threat to humanity, right? Because, you know, they could completely wipe us out. Whereas the kind of, at the moment, the AIs are a lot less of a threat. And they become more of a threat in the future, not because um, they're going to become super mega intelligent and take us over and crush our skulls and all that kind of stuff, but probably because this, the problem I was talking about with the self-driving cars, that they'll have learned a load of stuff, so we'll kind of mostly trust them and we'll put them in charge of more critical systems, but then they'll probably have learned some really strange stuff that maybe we won't pick out in the testing. 
And then that really strange stuff will come back to bite us because they'll make bad decisions based on this, you know, misinformation that they've got. And that won't because that won't be because they're super intelligent, but just because they've learned from the world. And you know, it's very difficult to to test and control systems that learn from the world. Okay, so, so in terms of you know uh, the people out there, so to speak, yeah. So I think the best thing to do is learn computer science and and get involved, right? Because there's tons of fun things to do with that. Yes, the best advice you know anyone can give right now. Everyone needs to learn computer science, irrespective you know of the age, uh, whether you are young or you know middle age or old, senior citizens. Everyone needs to learn computer science for our survival and security. I would say, oh, and philosophy as well. I must add, you know, because <laughs> because I think the real so computer science is really important because it gives you the skills to be able to model stuff and change stuff. But if you don't actually think about what you're doing, um, for example, through philosophy, then you're kind of not, not going to do so well. And, and so I think really actually an interdisciplinary perspective is, is definitely the strongest one, right? So you need to know some stuff about biology and some stuff about computer science and some stuff about, you know, philosophy or whatever it is. Yeah. So, you know, that not to be too narrow either is, is obviously a, a threat to humanity, right? We would say in a stand, science, technology, engineering, math, everyone should focus on that because the coming tomorrow, is going to require all those skill sets. So thank you so much, Professor Gemmes, for participating in Risk Roundup today. Our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on both man as well as machine consciousness. So even if a single individual or entity is able to benefit from the discussion we had today, this Risk Roundup dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Okay, well, thank you for inviting me. Wonderful, Dr. Gemmes. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening across cyberspace, aquaspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threat and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to the management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup webcast or hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jay Shree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.